0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my masters in eating disorders and clinical nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories, to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today we are joined by my good friend, Aidan. Aidan is a registered associate nutritionist who studies his undergraduate degree in nutrition at Sheffield Hallam University and went on to study eating disorders and clinical nutrition at UCL. Aidan is currently working as a young person support worker with plans of developing his career to become a clinical psychologist. Not only does Aidan have realms of experience in working with those with eating disorders, but he is also a beat ambassador following on from his own struggles with bulimia. Anorexia nervosa is often thought as the most common eating disorder, however studies have shown that bulimia affects 0.3% of males, compared with anorexia only affecting 0.1%. Moreover, eating disorders are commonly assumed to occur only in women, but with 25% of eating disorders occurring in men, this stigma needs to be abolished. Aidan is joining us today on our first ever episode to talk about the triple Bs, boxing, bulimia and beat, and to inspire you to feel more comfortable talking about less commonly discussed eating disorders. Hello Aidan.
1: Hello, lovely. Thank you for having me on.
0: How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm chuffed to, uh, yeah, to be on your podcast.
0: Good, to see you're yeah. you're doing so well. Oh, thank you. It's really exciting to have you. Um, so I think the best way to kick off would probably be from your personal experience, as well as using all the knowledge that you've got from, you know, being at UCL and for BEAT, is just to describe to us what bulimia is.
1: Yeah, definitely. So clinically, it's sort of generically characterised by basically binge eating on food. So in uh, in taking in a large amount of calories and then compensating with that, with some form of compensatory behaviour, be that sort of vomiting, uh, excessive exercise, laxative abuse. In my particular case, um, that was sort of binge eating on whatever, basically just eating a, a huge amount of food. And then initially started with exercising to get through that. So bouts of fasting, and then I do my exercise and then that gradually developed into, uh, yeah, self-induced uh, vomiting.
0: Okay. So I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned, you know, the exercise aspect of it. Because I think a lot of the time people think bulimia is just making yourself sick. So is it quite common for people to use exercise as a, you know, as a compensatory behaviour?
1: I'd say, yeah, definitely. A common misconception across all, you know, sort of the broad range of eating disorders, but especially in bulimia, is that you go from sort of being a healthy sort of non-ED type presentation to then instantly binging and purging mm-hmm. um, where it's more of a sort of slow burning effect. Yeah, It normally sort of starts with that emotional attachment to food. So okay. sort of guilt and shame and, you know, sort of I shouldn't be eating this and mm. feeling really bad about it. And then that sort of leads to the manifestation of these physical behaviours. So mm-hmm. the exercise, you know, I've, I've got to go to gym this morning so I can eat my lunch or right. things like that. Um and then that just becomes sort of, yeah, you can't maintain that. You, you can't, you know, everyone's got a life to live. You can't constantly be living in gym. Mm-hmm. So then that's when it sort of snowballs really into the more, right. yeah, the more darker stuff really.
0: Mm. And, you know, you say darker stuff. If it's okay with you, are you okay to yeah. kind of explain how that progressed for you?
1: Yeah, so um, taking it back a little bit. So I started boxing when I was uh, 16, 17, 17. Mm. Um, and I was it, compared to what I thought I was quite a big lad. I, I was sort of, yeah, about 40 kilos heavier than my fight weight when I first started. So, yeah, I started just losing weight. I started just making sort of healthier food choices originally. But even that got quite obsessive. So mm. I wasn't as fortunate as I am now to sort of have two degrees in nutritional science behind me. So I was very much bought into that pseudo science of like no carbs, you know, yeah. don't eat before after six and things. Um, yeah and then the yeah yeah definitely <laughs> uh, yeah misinformation and then started getting a little bit better um in terms of like how I could operate in the gym and I was starting to spar with lads that were that were fighting and then my coach just invited me down on a Tuesday and Thursdays which were just the sessions for the lads that were competing and he just said to me what well, just to throw away a comment just like, oh if you can get below this certain weight we'll start you sparring and you can like we'll start putting you forward to get fights and stuff and that's what I wanted to do. I, I love this sport. And I think mm-hmm. it sort of fed into that sort of 17, 18 year old Aiden and this sort of masculine, like, I'm a tough guy sort of thing. Yeah. The first, so it started off uh, initially, I'd sort of watch, be really sort of specific on what I was eating. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't deviate from this meal plan that I'd set myself. And if I did, I'd throw an extra running or I'd do some, an extra circuit after training. And then I'd got this one session we'd agreed that I'd be below a certain weight. And um, in the morning, and I knew I'd got sparring that night. Mm-hmm. In the morning, I was sort of bang on that weight. I had my breakfast, had a cup of coffee, and I realised I was over that weight just before setting off to training. And I thought, ah, oh, well, I can't go running because I've got sparring and I'll have heavy legs and I'll get sort of, yeah, punched in face. So, yeah, and, and you're aware of sort of quite negative ways of making weight, let's say, quite unhealthy yeah. ways and, and dangerous ways, really. So, um, yeah, throwing up is... Is um, yeah, it's it's a known way of, of doing it, wow. and especially before I got into boxing, I used to do a lot of grappling, and um, it's quite common in sort of like collegiate wrestling and things like that. And that's where it started. I sort of purged that one day, got back mm. on scales, and I would bang on the weight. And it's, it's strange looking back now, but in and I suppose it's just a an indication as to where my mind frame was at the time. But it was like a, a, a eureka moment. It was like oh, I found it. Like this is yeah. our this is my golden ticket. Yeah. You've um, worked it out
0: and nobody else has sort of thing.
1: Definitely. And, and it, it, I've always I think probably why I've sort of been looking Yeah, I've done quite well in my studies is that I've got quite a logical layout mm-hmm. to things. It's sort of this is a I need to get to B. Yeah. And it, it, it's over there. And to me, I could purge on my food, I wouldn't take them calories and I'd make weight, I'd fight. Mm-hmm. It, well, why would you not? Yeah. And yeah, it sort of just slowly got worse and worse from there, really. But that's initially how it, how it first presented, yeah.
0: And I suppose in the weirdest way, but, you know, you've explained like going from A to B, in your mind thinking, okay, I want to fight. This is what I enjoy doing. Logically, okay, that's an easy way to make weight. Why would you Why would you not do it? If nobody is saying to you the consequences it's going to have for you down the line... Then at the at that point, your goal was to fight. So I guess was there anything in place for you that you know people explained about making weight, or was it just kind of expected that you wouldn't suffer any consequences from it?
1: Yeah, well, I think it was. See, not to obviously the extent that sort of me and yourself did at UCL, but I was fairly fortunate that uh, some of the lads that I was, like, I was the. I think at the time, I was the only lad that hadn't boxed for England on our squad. Right. um that was a that was a senior that was above 18 so like my best friend at the time he was a GB podium boxer. so he I, I, I could sort of milk information off him because they'd mm. be working with like top level sort of SC, uh, uh, SCNR registered uh, sports nutritionists so I was sort of picking up little bits but it was it's all very much it, it's sort of that all or nothing mentality it's yeah. that's your job right it, it's mm-hmm. it's Especially the elite, not for myself. I was just a below-average club-level boxer, so. But for these guys that are now gone on to be professionals, and that's the career. Like your job, it's not about sort of maintaining a, a safe space and being in a healthy fruit market yeah, frame true. of mind. It's you've got to get in there and mm-hmm. you've you've got to do the business and, and come back out fit and healthy.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think also, as there is with all sports, at like a non-elite level, there's just stacks of misinformation. Yeah. And everyone knows sort of big Brian Downey pub that were, you know, used to compete and do this and other. And he tells you one thing and then someone else tells you something. And just because of the sheer amount of training you put in, these guys are in like really good physical condition. And Mm. I think from a, a non sort of, People haven't had the sort of privilege to study, go to university and study nutritional science. You see someone that's really lean and that's really fit and you think, oh, they must know what they're talking about. I'll listen to what they're saying. Sure. So I think I sort of fell into that sort of,
0: Mm.
1: yeah, spiral really.
0: So do you think as well, maybe it was looking up to people that were at a higher level than you, did that become your goal and did things start to get worse when they had...
1: Um, with the first part of the question, definitely. Um, I think I'd look, I'd looked up to these people that were sort of doing really good things, and and just how brilliant they were at the sport. And mm-hmm. it's sort of like, well, how were they doing that? You know, and I was, and the, the initial thing was, well, I needed to lose weight. I couldn't, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't run enough miles. I couldn't, I couldn't do enough rounds to practice enough because I was overweight. But I think one thing that was big for me, and I, I'm always, you know, and it goes without saying that. I think for myself i'm quite a competitive person so mm-hmm. the more weight i lost that had sort of a direct relationship with i could go longer in the gym i could go faster and harder i was fitter right. and stronger so i thought well the lower down i get the better i'll get like okay the further i can push it the higher up my my sort of skill i'll get mm. but yeah i it's it's quite strange actually i think my presentation got a lot worse after i quit boxing um and I think a lot well, a lot of that was basically tied to that sort of I think I attached all my masculinity to, to my sport okay. and I knew quite early on that I didn't know it was an eating disorder at the time but I knew that there was something wrong and then when right. I started reading up on symptoms and first read this word bulimia I'm like well this is what sort of this is a woman's a middle class woman's disorder this in I'm mm. a working class lad from Sheffield so then I think I sort of started really enjoying the fact that I'd get this sort of. Yeah, I was a, I was a, I was a man. I was a real man. I was getting yeah. it ring and fighting and I'd have black eyes and I, yeah. So I think when I had to quit that, that's when my presentations got a lot worse because
0: mm. I, I, didn't
1: have that sort of grounding factor anymore.
0: And I mean, if it's okay with you, do you mind just explaining how things got worse for you?
1: Yeah, I think the just the basic presentations of me, So I was binging and purging. Mm. so much more and I I became a lot more socially isolated because if so when I first started losing the weight when I was still quite overweight I'd get this I'd get sort of instant gratification off everyone like quite you're looking well mate and then it got to a certain point when I was getting to sort of down to down down towards my fight weight where people would be like mate you're looking are you all right Mm. just because I was so amazing, but all the lads were so it were like my group of friends at the time, we all competed. So that right. was the reason why we looked how we did. Yeah. But then after that, when I sort of left the sport, I couldn't hide it anymore. I didn't have an excuse as to why I looked so emaciated and so small. So I, I wouldn't go out anywhere because she'd get it like, oh, well, if anyone ever said anything to me when I was still boxing, I could lie and just say, you know, I've I've got a fight coming up or I've mm-hmm. got whatever. So I became a lot more socially isolated and I became very sort of angry and quick tempered and I think of it as that I I had so much hatred for myself that I sort of wanted someone to get into a physical altercation with me or something just to try and I don't know I think just to feel something physical I think I wanted them to cause the pain to me that I wasn't sort of capable to do to myself Mm. if that makes sense but yeah I I think a lot of it was that I just lost that that sense of masculinity in my sport Mm. and didn't really know how to sort of deal with that in a beneficial way, in a, a positive way.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that is one thing, isn't it? There's a lot of stigma associated around eating disorders. And like you said, being from Sheffield, you probably feel like you did have to be, you know, the big strong man sort of thing. So what sort of things did you, or do, you do now or like, you know, during your recovery? How did you manage those thoughts?
1: I'm sort of very careful answering this question because I understand that not everyone... I love that same experience, yeah. Um, and I sort of I'll, I'll preface this answer with me just saying that, like, this is this was my experience, and I'm not sort of validating or unvalidating anyone else's mm. uh, experience. But for me, I it was quite a nice thing. I was terrified of telling my dad for no reason because my dad's the most loving, warm-hearted man in the world. But I, I was terrified of telling my dad. Told my dad, and instantly were like, "Why?" Because before telling him, it had been sort of five years that I'd been sort of suffering with it and i'd become very sort of aggressive and yeah i just weren't a very nice young man um Mm. and me and my dad really drifted apart through no fault of my dad's and as soon as i told him he's like basically said to me like you're an idiot why on earth would you (laughs) not have just come and told me and then my friends from the state and and my just all people i'd grown up with i was terrified of telling them because i thought they'll not you know they'll think i'm this that and other told them and they were just like Oh, mate well done like you know you've you've gone you have getting help you, you, yeah. you've, you've you've spoken about it like well done mate give me a love and a kiss and it was like <laughs> for me it was just I think that's what helped me sort of reframe it uh, changed my mind frame on it because it was sort of instantly yeah it was like oh right that were a little bit silly and it started making me question all the other sort of preconceptions and things that I'd got on myself because I thought well if I've got this so wrong, if I've misjudged this area of my life so wrong, yeah, surely I've done that somewhere else as well. Like, mm-hmm. there's got to be something else that I've gotten wrong. Um, but I think it's sort of really important to say that not not everyone goes through that. And I've, mm. you know, these um, people that I've spoken to through sort of beat and things like that that have had the complete opposite that have mm. come from a, a a different background and and have not had it so nice. But for me, it was sort of. All it took was just me speaking and saying, look, I need a little bit of help, mate. And it was just, everyone just sort of dropped tools and, and, yeah, gave me a leg up. And it's strange now to the point where now, sort of two and a half, two, two and a half years after I was discharged, my friends will make jokes about sort of quite... I suppose, politically incorrect jokes to me about <laughs> things. But it's, yeah, it's just... um I was very fortunate that the people around me were sort of really open-minded. They didn't really know anything about it. Yeah, They didn't have a clue. Uh, I know my dad didn't. And, mm. like, he, he knew that it was an eating disorder, but the differences between that and anorexia were just... Yeah, they, they were yeah. spelled differently, basically. But everyone just made an effort. And, yeah, I was sort of really fortunate in that way.
0: Mm. I bet that really helped, you know, because you said about you really isolated yourself from feeling like people were going to make comments about the fact that you'd lost a lot of weight. So about having that support network around you, especially from your friends, were they like friends that you'd been boxing with?
1: A little bit. Yeah. But I think, I think because I weren't in that circle anymore. So from, um, yeah. So I, I had my last fight when I I was 19 Mm. and I was sort of, what would I have been? 22, 23 when I was discharged. So, in that time i'd sort of i didn't go to the gym i didn't go anywhere near it Mm. just because it were painful so i went down a couple of times and sort of helped out i held pads or like i'd just go and do like a keep fit session but i was sort of watching other people do what i wanted to do so it was like nah i stayed away so i sort of go apart from i stayed in touch with a couple of people from boxing but Primarily, I grew grew apart from everyone just because it was we weren't in that same circle anymore. Mm. So we sort of went off in different directions. But yeah, it was it was lovely, and I think yeah, it was it was really helpful just because if I were, I didn't have to lie about me anymore. If I were being a little yeah. bit short tempered or there was something up, I could openly just say, actually, mate, you know, I've I, I'm having a bad day. This is yeah. you know, this is this is why. And it be like, yes, yeah, sweet, no problem. And mm-hmm. then it would just yeah. yeah. It, it didn't sort of manifest into anything more sinister it was just it stopped as quick as it started um, yeah. so i think i was really lucky in that sense mm. to have yeah really open minded people around me
0: yeah definitely and is sport something that you've got back into since you've recovered or boxing is that something you do or is that still a bit of a sore spot
1: to be totally honest I, i've always said i think when i was first discharged i got into did a little bit of powerlifting then did a little bit of sort of like olympic lifting i did that for longer than I did the powerlifting and I always said that I'd love to get back in ring but it's a little bit of a fallacy I think I could I like to think I've got a I've got that much of a control over my recovery that I could compete again
0: yeah
1: but who knows um and I'm not the same kid anymore like yeah I was sort of 17, 18, 19, full of anger and I wasn't frightened of anything. And mm. yeah, even physically, I'd sort of got my head shaved. I didn't wear my glasses. <laughs> I was quite an aggressive looking young lad. And if I'm honest, I just haven't got that in me anymore. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know if I'd still have that ability to get punched in the face and still go forward and get punched again. I think if someone punched me in the face, I'd sort of be like, fair enough, mate, you can, mm-hmm. you can have this one. But sport is... Yeah, I think sport in general, while I was still in recovery, I dropped it completely um, mm. because it was sort of definitely a, a maintaining factor of my of my eating disorder. But then after that, it, it was sort of coming to terms with myself and realising that, well, actually, I like this. I like yeah. sport. And I think we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about when weight loss is OK. It's like, mm. do you just want to lose weight because you want to lose a little bit and get a little bit sort of fitter or, or whatever whatever your reason is or do you feel like you need to lose weight yeah and that was sort of the decision that I had with sport it was like well yeah I had to make sort of different decisions than just your average Joe blogs that go for a run but for me it's like well I enjoy training I enjoy Mm -hmm. putting myself through a session so why not as long as I keep an eye on it why like why not do that
0: I think often that can be like a really healthy way to look at it I think Like from my point of view, exercising during recovery can be, like you say, a maintenance factor. But having that break really lets you evaluate, is this something that I'm enjoying doing that's making me feel really good? Or is this something I'm doing for the wrong reasons? And I kind of am interested to hear your view on this because, you know, I've done weight cuts in the past, powerlifting nowhere near as extreme as boxing. But, you know, some people can do those weight cuts and be completely fine. And it doesn't affect them, and they move on with their life. And you know that's just something they do to compete. What do you think it was? Maybe about like a, your personality or characteristics that you have that that was something that really did affect you.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought this up because I'm always, every time I do anything around it, I'm always quite keen to say that you know, sort of boxing or powerlifting or any sport doesn't in itself cause yeah, someone to, exactly. to develop an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. For me. I think whilst I wouldn't have sort of been diagnosed with bulimia until I was sort of 17, 18, I was always very sort of, I had sort of a lot of sort of body concern and I was very conscious about my weight. Like when I was at school, I was quite an overweight lad and I'd sort of been bullied and things like that, mainly in primary school, not, not really in secondary school. And I didn't I sit here now and think well actually that I'm not one of these kids that you know like it doesn't have a massive impact on my life now it's just it happened when I was a little kid but I think that at a young age I was quite conscious about my weight and again not blaming him but my mum and dad were both quite they sort of did diets and this diet and that diet and had to lose weight and and yeah I think I was always quite conscious of my weight and I'm a very I've always been quite an obsessive lad so if I'm doing something, uh, so I have recently signed up to do an half marathon and mm-hmm. everything on YouTube is best running trainers, best running, <laughs> running kit that like my YouTube and when I were doing Olympic lifting, I was watching these like Eastern European powerhouses and like all put all my energy into one thing, which mm-hmm. is a good thing for things such as my studying because I find it very easy to just sit and do the same task for six or seven hours Yeah. But then when it came to my boxing, where there is this big emphasis placed on losing weight and being in shape, I got very obsessive over it and very sort of impulsive. So I didn't have that sort of like risk perception kicking off. Actually, you're probably taking it too far.
0: Yeah.
1: And also, I think a big thing for me, which probably, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but probably does tie into that bullying potentially, is that I enjoyed that people knowing that I boxed Mm -hmm. and I'd sort of have... I'd have the, so the, the gym that I boxed for um, and I'd have that on with my name on the back of it and and my nickname and stuff. It, I was dead proud of that and I think it tied into my ego a little bit. I think I, at times I can be very extrinsically motivated and mm. yeah so I, I think it also tied into that quite a lot. So it, it was sort of a vicious cycle but the more weight I lost the better at my sport I got and then the eating disorder sort of developed in and started getting worse and worse and worse and I couldn't quit the sport because of sort of the massage my ego a little bit as well yeah and yeah and I think that was a big part of it actually that sort of that from a toxic masculinity side of things it was just like I'm a tough I'm a I'm a tough guy you know and, mm. and which I'm not I never were that at school so <laughs> I think it was nice going through a period of time where I was like oh it sort of fed into that but yeah
0: I really like the fact I'm very similar in being able to sit and do something for six or seven hours feels really good because you can stay like focused on things. And I find the same in that I'm very like much a perfectionist. So I think sometimes people can try and get rid of those characteristics. How would you manage them whilst making sure that they don't get too much, if that makes sense?
1: A I, I, I thing that's, yeah, it sounds very sort of hocus um, pocus, but a thing <laughs> that helps me quite a lot is journaling. So when I was sort of quite ill, uh, I was calorie counting quite a lot. So I'd use My Fitness pal and things like that, but right. I'd also, before I found that, I'd, I'd have like a little book, like just like a reporter's notepad that I'd just make a log of everything mm-hmm. that had been in. And, to the tiniest sort of degree and that's me to a t as well that sort of obsessiveness it's I want to know everything I don't mm. just want to read an abstract or something I want to pick everything apart and for me now the journaling really helps just because for one it's the same act of I'm tracking everything I'm keeping a log of everything. not the food but more like emotionally in the day and yeah. and but also you can sort of read back and find trends in it. So if I find on sort of a Wednesday, I'm feeling, Wednesday after work, I'm feeling absolutely terrible, let's say, and I can look back and think, all ah, right, well, I'm having this session with a patient and you know, you can sort of think, all ah, right, well, this is something that I need to check then. Mm-hmm. But I think it's hard as well, because just as sort of the development of an eating disorder is sort of multifaceted, multifaceted and can be yeah. one of a billion different reasons, I've had people say to me before, like, oh, like, what works for you during recovery? And, and like, what would you advise other people to? And I'm like, I wouldn't because people train for decades to earn the right to say, actually, yeah. you should try this. And, I, like, there's so much, like, there's so many resources and different things you can, you can mm-hmm. try, obviously, under the supervision of a, a clinical team. And it's just finding what works for you for me the um the journaling worked brilliantly because it's sort of the same personality traits that led to sort of my eating disorder development Mm -hmm. also which i suppose is what a big part of recovery is about is learning how to because you're never going to change that like that they Mm -hmm. are your characteristics and like you just so rightly pointed out the journaling allowed me sort of a vehicle to use the same traits but just put it into a positive sort of thing so yeah for me the journalism It were really helpful but I always feel like a little bit of a yeah like a guru telling people to to
0: (laughs) no I like that I've I've personally tried to do it quite a few times but I just I'm so forgetful that it's like you know i I I buy this lovely new notebook and I'm gonna write all down all how I'm feeling but then you know the day's gone and I've completely forgotten to do it so that's definitely something I should try because I've heard such good things about it um So obviously, you know, now you're recovered, which is incredible, and you're working as a BEAT ambassador. So for those that don't know, um, would you just mind explaining what BEAT is and what they do?
1: Yeah, so BEAT are a charity. In fact, the the largest charity in the UK that do what they do. And it's basically finding support for basically either the the people that are suffering from the eating disorder or their Mm -hmm. sort of immediate support circle. So it could be parents... Girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, whoever. Um, and the work they do is amazing. So a lot of it is about sort of destigmatizing eating disorders, mm-hmm. raising awareness. Um, they don't offer specific sort of clinical help. So you wouldn't get sort of a, a family therapy session through Be but they do a lot around uh, it's, the signposting work's amazing. So you can go to log on to sort of online sessions and they'll show you how to go about doing things. Um, one thing that i think is brilliant especially for people that are sort of quite scared of talking is they do sort of like a cardboard fold out with i think it's like a traffic light so it's like red amber and green you give the red card to your gp and it you just basically tick the so it's a paragraph of sort of the big three so uh anorexia bulimia binge eating disorder and you just tick the box that you think you're presenting with and give it to the doctor and oh, wow. it gives them a link to go to mm-hmm. and. If the doctor's not sort of well-versed in that area and not really sure where to signpost, it'll give them mm. a link and this sort of like a service finder search engine on beat mm. so they can search a postcode and direct them where to go. But, yeah, they do a lot of work. And also uh, sort of the, the capacity that I work with them is the they have like an ambassador programme, which is okay. for people that have had lived experience. Mm. So the benefit of that is is obviously it can be, I think I, I was definitely guilty of it that i thought i was the only person that had ever suffered with bulimia yeah in history of the uh sort of disorder being known but you can the the, the sort of the especially sort of the social media and media campaigns that they run is all based on saying that look you're not on your own this is whoever joe blogs jane doe and they had sort of this disorder this this is where it came from and mm-hmm. um, But, yeah, the majority of the work is sort of a non-clinical support and and raising awareness, really.
0: Mm. That sounds fantastic. And do they do, like, any groups or, like, events or anything that people can get involved in?
1: Yeah, so they run – I'm a terrible, terrible ambassador for the moment. I forgot the name of them, but they do um, (laughs) – I think it's – they do it on certain days. so there's a a, a parents group, uh, Mm -hmm. which I think – I know that when, at least before I got in with – started working with them when my family was looking at this uh this sort of a mixed family group and then there's a specific group for sort of dads and mums oh, um good. I think that's a brilliant thing because I think sort of the parental role of a dad and a mum is quite different Absolutely. um so yeah and then they do sort of adult children uh adolescent there's yeah they do a range of things um that are all sort of the clinical responsibilities held by be so it's not sort of yeah these sort of boundaries put in place so you're not over over disclosing anything and mm-hmm. then sort of being left think left after the session thinking you know like I've touched on really sort of traumatic or delicate things there will be someone that if it's going a little bit too far that sort of just remind people the boundaries of the chat but yeah the event they do sort of the European uh, eating disorder conference mm-hmm. they have they work alongside them to what capacity I'm not sure but yeah sort of a publicize that and the website is just a plethora of different resources and different information mm. but yeah they're they, they're really amazing
0: mm. and so when this podcast will be published it will be eating disorders awareness week so do you know what beta doing that week to get things heard about yes yeah,
1: not not specifically this week just because um yeah i have answered that many emails in my uh, in my work i've neglected <laughs> my own emails but in previous weeks they've done the um sorry previous years the one that I really liked and I assume they're doing it again this year is uh, socket to eating disorders so you wear the funkiest pair of socks you've got
0: wow.
1: and yeah you sort of raise money for it as well and one thing that I thought was pretty cool is that when I was at undergrad for well, the first year that they ran it and there was a girl that I work really closely with she had lived experience in anorexia and yeah she's uh, yeah she's an amazing amazing person herself and we both did the sockets to eating disorders. And then you'd see random people that we'd never met that had got these really funky socks on. Oh, wow. And it was sort of like, oh, God, that's amazing. They're doing it as well. But yeah, no, like the work that they do is, is brilliant.
0: And so something I also wanted to ask you was when you, you know, you spoke about your bulimia and, um, you know, how kind of things got worse and then they got better through the support of, like, friends and family, did you have any clinical support involved in your recovery?
1: Yeah, so I um, initially went to my GP, which, yeah, so I had a well a very good experience going to my GP. I know that's not the same for everyone else, but my GP was, yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> He's quite, um, I mean, I find it quite funny, but I'm not sure if, if that's, yeah. But when we went in, there was a trainee doctor. So my actual GP came out and said, oh, I've, I've, I've got a trainee in with me today. Would, would it be all right if she ran the session? Uh, she like did your your appointment and i was like uh yeah no problem and there were this young lady bless her she was like must have been like twenty twenty one if that and she sort of asked her, so why are you here today and obviously i went into everything and broke down mm. i was like crying in the session and this poor girl's face just she was like <laughs> a, a mouth fell open and um my actual GP's like, I think I'll take this one and just swap sides with and it. And he was, yeah, he's, um, he's absolutely amazing. So yeah, they referred me on to uh Sheffield eating disorder service. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I had sort of a, I think it was about a five, six months wait um, to get. Wow.
0: Um,
1: yeah, which I think I thought that was quite long, but actually I was quite grateful because when I spoke, when I spoke to other people, actually that can go up to sort of a year and things like that. So yeah. I, I was quite lucky actually. And then yeah, I started the work there, and I think this is a another sort of key thing that I think there's a misconception that it's sort of it's like treating a physical illness, and Mm. where it's you know if you break your leg, a specialist clinician can say right in six weeks you'll be able to put weight back on it, in twelve weeks you can walk, and in sixteen weeks you can yeah go back to playing football or whatever. Whereas with this sort of treatment, it's it's how long's a piece of string really? Yeah. So. I had uh, uh, basically CBT, uh, but specific for bulimia and it was brilliant. The lady that I worked with was amazing and she was really, really sort of patient and yeah, but it it just wasn't working. So for the first, really for the first three quarters of my sessions, I was doing the homework. I was really putting everything into it, but I just didn't have that. that, The penny never dropped for me. And one, th- I've always done well with sort of. I hate compliments. I'd rather someone say, "Look, you're doing this wrong," because I can, I can work with the negative. Yeah. I can make it better. I'll always remember it. I sort of walked in. I gave her my uh, the, the the notepad that I'd done my journaling in and, and all the exercises and stuff. And we used to have to keep these um, like food diaries. So it was like the time that you ate, whether it was a binge purge episode, your thoughts and emotions, where you were what you could hear, sat everything, it, it, basically a, a typical sort of CBT journaling exercise. And this week sort of I'd binged and purge quite a few times and there was no change. And she basically turned around to me and said like, the words that she was, was like, we're giving you a tool belt and giving you the best tools you can have, but we can't force you to build the house. Like you've got mm-hmm. to do it. To which when she said it, I sort of got really like angry and I was, yeah, I was really sort of mad. And I can remember walking back to my car and it was a a, a, a like a really, really shiny black BMW X5 parked next to where I was parked. And um, I used to always wear like really baggy clothes. And I'd never sort of look at myself in reflection. So I'd try and stay away from mirrors and right. things like that. And for some reason, this one day, I think that's what I needed. I needed, she called it um, harsh empathy.
0: Mm. It
1: was, I needed someone to look, sort yourself out a little bit. Because
0: yeah.
1: I, I looked at this BMW and for some reason just like rolled my T-shirt up. Mm. And that's the first time I saw myself for what I actually was. That so my hip bones were right. sticking out, and I was sort of really, really, really slim, quite a tiny lad. And that was it. That was like, that's mm. when it. That that's when my recovery started. And yeah, I think everyone will have. Well, I can't say that most people will have that that penny dropping moment. And it's. Um, I think that's the job of a clinical team as well to be able to understand how they can best guide you towards that moment. Yeah. But I think you've also, you've got to want to change and it's, I think there's a difference between saying, look, I need help and, and actually wanting help and being willing to take on board and and willing to change because it's such a scary thing. Like, especially sort of, I mean, I developed, I sort of, I would have been diagnosed around 17, 18, Mm. probably more towards 18. So I'd, I'd already sort of developed my personality and, and. Like them attachment I, I were lucky enough that i'd come from a really loving family so i would got sort of really good attachment bonds with my parents and i yeah so i can only imagine how hard it is for people that develop an eating disorder young sort of 13 mm. 14 15 where you're not formed into the sort of the person you're going to be you've not developed your personality you've yeah it, it must be so terrifying to actually because you do form you know this i mean to i'll go sort of geeky for for a couple of minutes but there's this research that shows that well, that suggests that, that well, that you do develop sort of an attachment bond to, mm-hmm. to your eating disorder, and that right. the sort of proximity seeking behavior that child will show to mum is replicating an eating disorder by responding to the urges by actualizing them. So, uh, sort of engaging in eating disorder behaviors
0: mm.
1: is, is sort of the equivalent of the proximity seeking behavior, which then uh, brings okay. sort of the subject and the disorder closer together. Yeah. So, yeah, for, I mean, I always think that I was lucky is the wrong word, but I'm grateful that in terms of clinical severity, I was mm. sort of on the mild side of what it could mm-hmm. have been. And that I developed it at an age where I'd got, I mean, I'd got somewhat of a grasp of the person that I was yeah. for, for what any 18 year old can have. Mm-hmm. like, But yeah, I think it must just be so, it, it is such a scary thing to sit in front of a stranger and and let go of this sort of comfort blanket Mm -hmm. that that, that you've got but yeah
0: I suppose a question for you is you know you hear a lot about how anorexia is kind of seen as a friend and I've never heard about that kind of from a bulimia perspective but you know you said earlier that you were very isolated do you think that the bulimia kind of might give people that feeling of a friend as well?
1: Yeah I think it sounds quite strange saying it now, but I, I enjoyed, especially, well, in the sort of first couple of years, I quite enjoyed it. It was, which is strange, sort of, it, you'd get a buzz when mm. you'd purged and you'd get sort of, it was like, oh, you know, and I can remember loads and loads of times where I'd have where I'd have purged and I'd jump in, shine, I'd be singing, I'd be on top of world and it'd be like, you know, but then, like you say, when it got more sort of, a little bit more severe and, and I wasn't going out and things like that. mm. that's when it's a, it, we're a double-edged sword because in one hand I'd still got my bulimia and I'd still got that comfort blanket that I speak of but at the same time I wanted to take it off I was yeah. I was too warm I didn't need this blanket anymore and it was mm. it was sort of yeah it's really hard to um I once a clinical psychologist at uh, once he was speaking he showed us a, a, a letter that one of his patients had written and it was basically an exercise where at the beginning of treatment, he'd got them to write a letter to their eating disorder. Mm. Um, say, I forget what they'd been diagnosed with, but that doesn't really matter. And they'd written this thing about how they couldn't live without them and things like that. And yeah, and I think this this particular young person had come from quite like a, an abusive home uh, sort of environment. And then at the end of the thing, when when she'd been sort of discharged, she wrote another letter, which although it'll. it'll stay with me until the day I die and she wrote in it that her anorexia was sort of the like a lighthouse during like this massive storm that was a childhood where there was sort of no love and no compassion shown by family but she always had a eating disorder yeah. and then she spoke about but now the sun's come up and I don't need that lighthouse anymore oh, how lovely. and 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 that is I think that just anything you need to know about it is written in that sort of little that little sort of story that. It, it, it served it, and it did it served a purpose for mm. me for me I, I'd come from a lot I'd, I'd not come from a traumatic background quite the opposite but it served a purpose in my sport and I think as most people do, I was sort of searching for what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and I never really felt like I never felt like I found my sort of vibe at like my um yeah my groove and that's what the bulimia did it's like, oh well I'm this I'm, I'm this yeah. person now but then it got to a point where it's like well you know, thank you for helping me through that part of my life, mm. but yeah, I don't need it anymore. And I think that was a big thing for me. And thinking, right, that this is this is how we get better.
0: And how how did you get over that? Like, you know, you said that the bulimia gave you, I guess, a kind of personality, and you said, you know, it made you feel really good. I assume that as part of your recovery, that must have been quite difficult to try and replace that.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's quite. It, it always amazed me because a lot of the sort of rules that I live my life by are things that are passed down from my family. I worked with these clinicians at, at St George's um, and caused them quite a few headaches, I suppose. But um, my dad always used to say to me, um, this sounds unrelated, but I promise I'll sort of, yeah, I'll bring it <laughs> back. My dad always used to say from growing up, never be a yes man, and like back up north, that's basically, you know, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. no. and Yeah, you're sort of living in other people's shadows. And the minute I realised that actually I'm not in control of this anymore, it's, I felt like I was believing yes man. I would right. been a yes man to someone else. So all I could all I could think about when I ever thought about sort of relapsing, were being sort of three four years old in coal. My dad don't be no one yes man when you go up, to, <laughs> you know. Um, so that for me were like, I'll live my own life. You, like no one's going to tell me what to do. Mm. And if I want to dust something, I'll do it. Like, and for me that were most like. Yeah, I think that was the most influential thing is that I knew that I wanted to take control of my own life back yeah. and I didn't want to be told or bullied into doing something. So for me, just keeping that in mind, that while ever I'm submitting to my bulimia, I'm never, ever going to feel fulfilled or I'm always going to feel like there's something not quite right. And yeah, it, it was that really. So yeah, good old daddy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I suppose that's a really nice way of putting it as well because I think often people think when you go through recovery that one day you're going to wake up and think yep this is it I'm on the path and I'm not going back now but the way that you said how you just kept thinking about I'm not bulimia's yes man it's like you you know you had to keep reminding yourself that this is not what I want to do and I'm going to carry on and I suppose that's always what it is isn't it it's never as simple as just yeah recovery I've done it it's finished now it's something that you constantly have to keep pushing at
1: definitely and I think yeah I, I think there definitely is that that misconception that one that you're going to go into a service and you'll spend sort of 16 to 20 however many weeks mm. and at the end of it it's like Poof, I'm <laughs> I'm cured you know mm-hmm. but it don't and, and recovery is different for recovery looks different for different people yeah. like for myself as I mentioned earlier sort of realistically whilst it had like a massive massive impact on my life and those around me in terms of clinical severity i was sort of at the quite low mild end of, of what it, of what bulimia can look like so now my recovery really especially at this point and again i'm sort of two and a half three years into my well yeah two two and a half years into it so when i first came out when i was first discharged. Obviously, it was still very much like it's weird. I I was still believing it, but I just didn't have the physical presentation. So it's like, oh, you can you can go home now, sort of. thing You can right. go back. But now for me, recovery looks pretty much. It's like I've, in some ways, it's like I've never had an eating disorder, and mm. it's and I think a lot of that is because I've learned to just use them parts of my personality in a, in a positive way. <laughs> um, but but for a lot of people, it's not like that. And for some days, it can change for me, but. I, t- being truthful and and i think it's to sort of give justice to people that aren't as as sort of fortunate as i am it's it's like i've never had bulimia to be fair (laughs) um but for a lot of people it's just recovery isn't i'm I'm back to normal in quotation marks it's just that you're not presenting day by day and for some people it might be like week on week for me it's pretty much year on year that I, i might have to have a few sit downs with myself you know once a quarter and think right this weren't great but for some people it's going to be hour by hour for some people it's that you're going to have sort of a severe long-term like lingering behind the scenes eating disorder where it's going to every hour you might have to sit to yourself and think right we've done 11 till 12 how are we going to get from 12 till 1 Mm. but i think the message is still the same that it's it might not seem it but it's so much better to live a life where Mm -hmm. You're checking yourself every hour and not present well you are still present with it but you're managing it on an hourly basis or a weekly or a monthly or a yearly basis Then just say right well I'm just going to keep I'm, I'm just going to keep my head firmly in that sort of my I'm going to keep presenting I'm not going to put any effort in because it's going to be so hard to recover mm. because if you are checking it on, a, on an hourly or a weekly basis that hour and that week is going to pass anyway mm. so you can either choose to. That sounds so sort of black and white, but you can you can think self. So actually, I'm willing to to check myself that many times a week or a day, and be healthy again, mm. quote unquote, or keep just down that path of sort of self destruction where yeah. it's just such a whirlwind of emotions and mm. and.
0: And I suppose surely the hope would be that okay, you do start by you have to check yourself hour by hour to get through. But then you know like you said about your journaling you can kind of notice patterns that that didn't really work why didn't it work how can we make it better next time then you'd hope that the hour by hour having to check in with yourself might progressively get easier and that's never going to happen if you never start to recover
1: exactly i always like and and whether you know i might get shouted at by more senior clinicians than myself but i always think it's a skill recovering from anything an eating disorder is is, it's a skill and and The only way to get better at it is to consistently stay practicing it, keep doing it, making mistakes and like relapse. People talk about relapse as like this massively detrimental thing that means that you've failed and it's not, it's a normal thing. It's a normal part of recovery that you are going to relapse. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. The only time it's sort of not beneficial for your recovery is if it just keeps happening and happening and and you're not, you need to work on, and if you if you're if you keep relapsing and you're not able to sort of figure it out as to what things you need to change, then that's mm. probably an indication that maybe a little bit more support from yeah. someone that's qualified enough to show you. Well, let's let's you know work on this. Or yeah, it's just like you say, it's practice, and, and it will only get better. Like mm. it's there are some sort of uh, mental health conditions, psychiatric disorders that are sort of lifelong things that are, that are basically. It's super hard to recover from, and there's a debate whether they are you can recover from them or not. But I think, thankfully, with the right care plan and the right certain circumstances and the right sort of set of events, eating disorders aren't one of them things, mm-hmm. and and it, it can and will get better.
0: Lovely. So I know you said earlier that you wouldn't ever give anybody recovery what they should do. But one thing that I do want to ask all the guests that I have on the podcast is kind of their top tip or their best advice for trying... If somebody's, you know, still struggling with an eating disorder, your advice for how to start leaving it behind.
1: So I suppose I'll answer it in two ways. First one is professional sort of mental (laughs) health worker is... And and that don't make it any less. So, like, go to your GP, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have, like at some point you're gonna to have to go or, or somewhere where you can be signposted to a to a specialist service. But that's sort of the end point. Before that, for me, I think the, the biggest thing I can do is just talk. And that doesn't even have to be to someone else. Like I practised telling my dad that I was bulimic for weeks and my mum mm-hmm. as well. Um I've sort of ignored my poor old mum but she's as typical mums I could I could I was a little boy and I can do no wrong in her eyes. So it was not quite <laughs> a scary. But I practised telling my parents for weeks and like literally two, three, four weeks, I'd drive home practising into my rear view mirror that I was telling them and just saying it out loud. You might think, well, what good's that? But just hearing the words out loud and not as a mm. thought and saying them out loud makes you think, is that actually what I'm doing? Like, you know, and and then, yeah, when you feel comfortable enough, just speaking to people and saying, look, I'm struggling and I need a little bit of help. And And, and I think as well, just to, caveat that you are never going to feel comfortable enough it's um talking about things in general is frightening getting up in front of your class and and giving a presentation or getting a, an award at your sunday league football thing and giving a speech it's always going to be scary but when you've done it you get back down and think oh, i want to do that again that would yeah that would mean you know but yeah just talking and they're in a magic pill and i suppose one more thing I'll, uh, and then i'll stop rambling but i think a big thing as well which is really hard to do and is probably more down the line is that detaching yourself away from so if you do get a diagnosis not you so many people where the i suppose thinking it from a systemic sort of point of view is that yeah that's you have been sort of um you have been diagnosed but that's you know that that's it you've got a diagnosis and that's not the be all and end all you can't just use the diagnosis as an explanation for everything that happens in your life it's that you've got that and you need to learn and find a way again through supervision of of, of clinicians to sort of detach away from that but yeah the big thing is just talking and it it sounds cliche but it works there's there's a reason that you know you don't have surgery for mental health disorders it's you, you have to talk you have to sit in a room and have them awkward toe curling conversations <laughs> that make you want to just you want floor to swallow you up
0: yeah
1: but that's just how it is and then yeah just keep practicing it really
0: yeah well thank you so much for coming and talking to us today it's been so lovely to have the chat with you and just really nice for you to share your experience so thank you very much
1: thank you for having me best of luck with uh yeah best of luck with everything with full of beans
0: <laughs> thank you very much Thank you so much, Aidan, for joining us on the Full of Beans podcast to share your story. I know so many people will be truly inspired by your attitudes and we all must make sure we're nobody's yes-man, especially for Mr Mortimer. Next week, I will be joined by the wonderful Becca Aids. I met Becca during my Masters at UCL, and in her episode, we discussed her journey from anorexia nervosa to clinical psychology at Exeter, to her current career as an assistant psychologist for eating disorders. My conversation with Becca honestly left me wanting to go run in a field of flowers. Discussing recovery and the unexpected joys was utterly beautiful. One of the most overwhelming things for me that I thought, oh my gosh what I've been doing is I had energy to laugh which sounds ridiculous I know yeah. I just and I was like oh my gosh I, this is what I've been depriving myself of if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders but also their loved ones as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. For further support please visit the BEAT website, the SEED website or speak to your local GP. See you next week, bye!